Acts 10, 34 through 43. There's a fan. Hang tight. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, in both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged for the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him should receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Thank you, Katie. Pastor Tim. Hello, everybody. Yeah, it's been a uh, pretty interesting weekend with all of our technological issues that are going on. Um, so you can always be praying. You know, the history of this campus, we've had technological issues. It really has been amazing. So just uh, be praying, if you would, for the Lord to uh, help us with that, to endure through these issues and these little hiccups. But we're not going to let it stop us from being the church. Amen. All right, I hope you got your Bibles open. If you closed them after Katie did that reading, please open them back up again. And I'm going to welcome those who are going to see this online that you actually get the Bible open right now. So if you're watching this online, uh, can you make sure you have your Bibles open and we are in the Word of God together. If you're here and live and you don't have a Bible with you, there's one right in front of you in the back of that pew. So let's all get our Bibles open. And while you're opening them to Acts chapter 10, let me tell you about one of my favorite evangelists uh, in the history of actually our country. Even though he was born in England, George Whitfield made an incredible mark here in America. He was one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church. In fact, in his day, newspapers wrote about him and called him the marvel of the age, the marvel of the age. He lived in the 18th century. Some of you might remember him preaching an estimated 18,000 times to around 10 million people, all before planes, all before the internet, and all before even PA systems were developed. And I mention that because he had an incredibly powerful voice. His friend was Benjamin Franklin, who did not really ever believe in Whitfield's message of the gospel, but he really liked Whitfield. And he once calculated scientifically that George Whitfield's voice could be adequately heard in a crowd of 30,000 people outdoors. He even walked one mile away while Whitfield was preaching and he could still hear his friend's voice. He had a powerful, powerful voice. It was Whitfield whom the Lord used, by the way, to ignite a revival up and down the colonial states called the Great Awakening. And he preached his final sermon, September 29th, 1770, 
in Exeter, New Hampshire. He died at 55 years old. You know what he kept telling people? He said, I want to wear out, not rust out. He wore out. He had asthma. He preached over and over. Even when they told him he better not, he needs to get his health back, but he would not stop preaching. He's preaching on that day, September 29th, in New Hampshire. He's standing on planks that spanned two barrels to get him up above the crowd so that they could see him. 6,000 people listening to him in this final sermon. Nobody knew he was going to die the next day other than God. And here's one of the things he said in that final sermon, and I want you to look, it up, look up on that screen, and you will see it. Works. Works. A man gets to heaven by works. I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. In other words, there's no one that's going to get to heaven through their good deeds. No one is going to be able to successfully earn their forgiveness. So how does one get to heaven? Well, that's really the question that we're going to answer today through Peter's sermon. How does a person get to heaven? And we're going to see the answer to that as Peter speaks in the home of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius has all of his family. He's got all of his close friends jam-packed into this home. And Peter, who was invited, is going to explain that question. How does one get to heaven? Now let me get you to rewind for a moment. If you didn't hear the message from last week, can I encourage you, get on the website get to that message, and even the one that Pastor Kyle preached two weeks ago. And I'm going to give you a bit of a heads up. You won't want to miss the sermon next week. And you definitely won't want to miss the sermon in two weeks when Luke recaps the entire chapter for us. In other words, I guess I should just say this, don't ever miss church again. You definitely want to be, though, in this little mini-series within our series, because last week, if you were here and if you heard the message, you'll remember that there was a seemingly unbridgeable divide between Jews and Gentiles. Now, if you don't know what a Gentile is, that's all right. It's a non-Jewish person. There's only two types of people, really, from a biblical perspective in the world. There's only ever been two types, Jewish people and Gentile people, at least ever been since Moses and Abraham's days. So we've got Jews, we've got Gentiles, there is an unbridgeable divide between the two of them. And yet the mission that God had given to Israel, and remember Israel was the people that God called to be his own possession. He called them out of the nations of the world, and he made them a people for himself. And by the way, Christian... You know that's exactly what he's done for you. That's what Colossians 2 means. He's called you out of the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his son to be a people of his own possession, a blood-bought treasure, the apple of his eye. So the church, the body of Christ, belongs to God. And just like Israel, the church is to bring glory to God. Now, what does that really mean? I mean, we throw that word around all the time, right? To glorify God. 
Here's what it means to bring glory to God. It means that God's attributes and character is illuminated. It is visible. It is seen. So if you're going to bring glory to God through your life, then that means you're going to live in such a way that God's character and attributes can be seen by other people through you. And that's what Israel was to do. They were to be a light unto the Gentiles. They were to be making God's glory visible to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles would want to know God. But instead, what happened is the Jewish people hunkered down. They thought themselves superior to Gentiles, that the message of hope was for them and not for the Gentiles. So if the light of salvation was to go to the Gentiles through the church, then the Jewish people have to have a change of heart. And the one who represents the Jewish people at this point in Acts is Peter. And last week we saw how God changed Peter's heart, which was full of favoritism and prejudice. And see how today Peter became a powerful witness to the Gentile people. And millions of non-Jewish people since have come to know Jesus. Now let me, let me ask you a question really quick to get us started. And then I'm going to outline where we're going to go in this message. Are you a Gentile person? Most of you are going to answer yes. Wonderfully, we've got some Jewish people in our church, but most of us are Gentile people. And if that is true of you, then you can owe your salvation to this point in the story of Acts because the door of salvation was now opened to the world. Here's what we're going to see today. I'm going to give you a cheat sheet. I'm actually going to give you basically the outline before we get going. We're going to see how somebody can get to heaven. But how that happens is through the powerful witness of the church. So really what we're going to look at is how can you have a powerfully effective witness for Jesus. Here they are, three ways. Number one, a powerfully effective witness is going to come from a transformed heart. A powerfully effective witness will come from the gospel-centered message that you give. And three, a powerfully effective witness will always include the invitation of grace. So here we go. Number one, a powerful witness comes from a transformed heart. Look at the first three words, if you're in the ESV, of verse 34. Everybody look at your Bibles. Here's how Peter begins his message. Truly, I understand that would not have been possible four days previous to this because Peter did not understand do you see truly I understand is the evidence that his heart is being transformed and I want to ask you a, a question Christian brother and sister and I don't want you to be blithe in answering this don't be like waxing eloquent within your own mind just be honest and real where is God transforming you right now where is God changing you right now where does he put his finger in your life and said this is an area that I'm changing 
Well, if you're in the Word of God, like Psalm 1 says, right, it goes, uh, he who meditates on the law of God day and night will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and everything he does prospers. If you're in the Word of God daily, then the Word of God is changing you, and your life will bear out the evidence. So where is God right now changing you? And I'm going to ask you another question, and I'm really going to invite you to do due diligence with this question. Whose face pops to your mind when I ask you this? Who do you so desperately want to see get saved? Whose face came to your mind? Do you know that person's in your life for a reason? And that you bear not only the responsibility to be a witness to that person, you bear the privilege of it. So how are you going to witness powerfully? How will you witness effectively? Well, that's really what Peter's going for here. This is what we're going to learn. If you're going to have a powerful witness to the people that are spiritually dead around you, then you've got to have a heart that's being transformed. You see, Peter's introduction in verse 34 reveals that now he understands that God loves Gentiles just like God loves the Jewish people. The gospel is for all who, look what it says, fear him. That wouldn't really make sense if I said the gospel is for those who are Christians. I mean, I guess it would because we're not only only saved by the gospel, Corinthians says, we're being saved by the gospel. So yeah, it would make sense, but here's really what Peter's saying. If you fear God, if you're searching, if there's an emptiness inside of you, if there's a longing to know something with purpose and you can't find it in this world like the Ethiopian eunuch who traveled 1,500 miles to try to find God in Jerusalem and then headed home empty. If that's you, you have something, you're looking for something, but you can't find it. That's the evidence that there is a fear of God in you. You're going to God to find it, but if you go to religion that is sterile and cold, you're not going to find them. You see, Cornelius is a Gentile. He is a Roman centurion. He fears God, but he's not a Christian. He has an appetite for God, but he doesn't yet know God through Jesus. He's not yet saved, but he has a search for God. And Peter's about to powerfully witness, not just to Cornelius, but to his family and his friends as well. But before, Peter couldn't see a Gentile as possibly justified as right with God, acceptable to God. But now, three days ago, previous to this, God changed his heart. Now, he can bring the gospel message to bear to the Gentiles, knowing confidently that God's going to work powerfully. So let me put it this way. God works most powerfully, most effectively, through those in whom he is working most powerfully. Now, let me say it again. God... God works most effectively through those in whom he is working most powerfully. Is he working in your life, Christian? If so, he wants to work 
through you. And he wants to work powerfully. So a, an effective, powerful witness is going to come from a transformed heart. But let me get to the number two. A powerful witness comes from a gospel-centered message. Now, here's the meat of the sermon. Now, I'm going to give you some very gracious pastoral advice. If you've been asleep so far in this message, you probably needed it. Good for you. Way to catch up on the Z's. Now you got to wake up. I'm going to be so great. I'll let you know when you can go back to sleep, okay? I'll be so good to you. I'll let you know you can go back to your nap. But right now, everybody wake up. This is the meat of the message. This is the most important part. And a powerful witness comes from a gospel-centered message. But Christian, do you know what a gospel-centered message is? Peter is about to show us exactly what it is. And it starts with this. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Now, I'm going to read that in a minute, but let me get you ready for it. Human history, even to the modern day, our day, shows us that people, if it's possible, would fight God to the death. Do you know that? Do you know why I asked you if you know that? Because I've discovered that a lot of Christians don't know that. That's what our rebellion is, friends. It is a struggle against God with the overarching goal of ending his rule over us. Every single sin that you and I commit is an effort of extinguishing God's rule over us. You may not see it that way because you might see it horizontally, but you've got to flip it vertically because that's its worst, most heinous direction. It's always an effort to end God's rightful rule over me. That's what my sin is. And we know that that's our sinful goal because God did come to humanity and humanity killed him. There is in us a disobedience. There is a defiance that the Bible calls sin. It is a cosmic struggle with God, and it lives and it pulses in us. And when it's alive in us, and even when it's present with us in birth, it cuts us off from relationship with God. It creates a schism and a faction and a gulf between you and God that you cannot bridge. There is no solution in human effort to fix. There's nothing a sinner can do to fix his own condition. In fact, let me take you even more evocatively to what really sin is. Every time we sin, think of the last time you sinned. You may not need to go back very far. I will guarantee you, you don't even need to go back to yesterday. It was kind of funny last night during church. I went up and talked to this uh, mother and daughter afterwards because I was laughing so hard. They came in late, and, uh, you know, I could tell that they didn't really like coming in late because they felt kind of like everybody was looking at them, unlike some of you who could come in late and feel like, hey, I'm in my glory. They came in late, 
And she was the daughter on mom's left, and they sat in the right section of the sanctuary. And the daughter tried to cut into the pew before mom and hip-checked her like a rollerblading queen right into the pew. It was awesome. They didn't think so. You should see the looks that they gave each other. So you may not need to go back very far to remember when you've most recently sinned. It may be this morning if you're a parent with young children. And it may not be your children who is the object of your sin. You know what you did, though, in that sin? And you know what I do in my sin? I'm going to tell you what you do. You take a metaphoric right hook to the jaw of God and you say, get out from over me. I want the throne. I want to rule my domain. And I want to be the one empowered and responsible to bring what I want in my life right now. That's really what sin is. It is cosmic defiance against God. And if you don't see it that direction yet, the gospel will cultivate that awareness more and more as you grow, and it will drive you to confess, repent, and return to your God in worship. That's what's so terrible about sin. It's an attack on the lordship of Jesus. You see, he created us. You know that, right? You know, Jesus created us by the power of his word. You know, Colossians says he keeps every atomic structure molecularly in your body together because there is a force that scientists do not yet understand where naturally your atoms want to fly apart. Jesus is the cohesion that keeps them together. He created you. He keeps you together. He keeps you healthy. He keeps you walking in his direction of his purposes. He is the Lord. If there is anything impossible, though, it is that the rightful creator can be at peace with his rebellious creation. That is utterly impossible. God cannot be at rest. God cannot be disposing his favor. God cannot be experiencing an absence of conflict. All of that called peace with a creation in rebellion. It's just not possible. Something needs to be the solution to end the cosmic struggle. And here it is, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. All right, well, let's, let's get this down for a second, okay? I've taught you this before, but I'm going to teach you a Greek word called pass, P-A-S. And that is what the English word all is from. So all means all, and that's all that all means. Everybody say it with me. All means all, and that's all that all means. You guys are the most disobedient congregation ever. <laughs> Trying to wake you up. Forget it. All. That means the believer and the unbeliever. That means the Jew and the Gentile. That means the person from America and the person from outside of America. That means the sinner and the righteous, the unjustified and the justified. Shall I go on? It's every category of human being possible. He is the Lord of all. He is the rightful creator. And one must come to Christ as Lord or they simply cannot come to Christ at all. 
Does a, full, does a sinner fully understand that, all of the implications of that upon salvation? Absolutely not. But can you come to Jesus saying, I want to be saved from hell, but I really don't want you running my life. I don't really want to submit to you and learn to live my life by picking up my cross and denying myself daily and following you. You cannot come to Christ that way. You cannot be his disciple that way. He will not accept you and neither will he save you. See, Jesus is the Lord. And if you're going to have a powerful, gospel-centered witness to your spiritually lost friends, then you need to help them understand the one who bought you, the one who offers salvation to you, is the same one who created you. He owns you. And if you're willing to come and submit your life to him, he will save you. But that's not the only one. I told you there's five components of a gospel-centered witness. The second one is Jesus is the Savior. Verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So Peter tells us there's something significant that we've got to communicate in the baptism of Jesus. Because here's what happened in the baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3. The heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased you see what happens is here comes the spirit of God in Jesus baptism John lays him under the water he brings him back up the spirit of God comes down on him visibly in the form of a faithful mate for life gentle bird called a dove and then the father booms out from the heavens this is my son this is who you are this is who this man is he's the god son and i am well pleased with him i am satisfied in him now christian i want you to listen this is so important do you not realize that the same thing has happened to you the moment of your salvation does that not make your soul hunger to remember this? Is this not part of why we celebrate the Lord's Supper? To bring you back to the awareness that the Spirit of God, Christian, has come down on you and lives in you, dwells in you, gives you the power to do all that God's going to ask you to do. And the Father is booming like an echo into your soul. You are my child, and with you I am well pleased. Why? Because you climbed to the moon on a rope of sand? Absolutely not. It's because my son died in your place and made you right with me. I am pleased with you. That, that brings power to your gospel witness. Can you imagine a spiritually lost person that has a hole in his soul that is looking for a way to fill it, but nothing seems to fill it? You can have the power of God and the well-being favor of God upon you. You come to Jesus as Savior. But it's not only Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is the Savior. Now you're going to get to the sweet spot of the gospel. Now you're going to get to the hole in the donut where all the filling goes. It's the best bite. It is Jesus is the Redeemer. 
Look what he says in verse 39. And we are witnesses, Peter said, of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. All right, so you're witnessing to a spiritually lost friend. And they'll listen to you as long as you're talking about God. The world is okay with that. That is um, somewhat of an easy message for the world. But you invoke the name of Jesus and it brings everything to the next level. And you dare talk about Jesus, the Son of God, who has come to die on that cross. Now you're going to have a provocation in their soul. They cannot remain dormant in the face of the power of redemption. Either they will harden their hearts or they will break. But you must bring the core of the gospel to bear. It is the cross. And to tell a crossless of a crossless Christ is to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. Any witnessing that does not point to the cross has no power. Paul clearly said this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you want an effective, powerful witness, then you've got to get to the cross. You've got to get to the redemption. Now, I want you to hear what I'm going to tell you because this is sweeping, sweeping America. There are so many preachers that peddle an empty gospel with a palatable message of a loving, kind God that doesn't really need an atonement through the death of his son on a cross. They try to Disneyfy the gospel. They take the blood out of it so they could get to an expanded audience, but it doesn't work. If you take the blood and the cross out of the atonement, then you get a make-believe God that is nothing but jovial, grandfatherly, and kind, and gregarious, and just invites you onto his lap to hold you every day you're having a bad one. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this, the father sent his son to die. Because we are in cosmic defiance. And there's no other solution. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Somebody innocent has to die for those who are guilty. And friends, the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. Here's the bad news. You've sinned just like me. You put a right hook to the jaw of God. That's really what you've done. You've been a rebel. And sin bright brings rightful death. And if God wants to save you, if God wants you back, then he has to do something to make it happen. And here's what he did. He sent Jesus, his son, to die on the cross in your place. Taking your shame, dying your death. He is the Lamb of God, sacrificed so that you could live. But death would not have victory. Why? Because Jesus, number four, is the resurrected one. Now, have you, are you with me on this? I'm, gonna, I'm showing you how your witness can have power. And all five of these, I'm at number four, all five of these are critical. You don't have to be in order. They could be organic in a conversation. They could be dynamic, but you've got to get all five of them in your witnessing if you want it to be powerful. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Redeemer. And now Jesus is the resurrected one. 
He did not stay dead. Look at verse 40. But God raised him on the third day. Now, I'm going to take you on a world tour real quick. You ready? Doesn't matter that we're in a pandemic. You don't even need your mask on this one. Here we go. World tour. I'm going to take you to Muhammad's tomb. He's the prophet of Islam. The most famous one. And you know what you're going to find when you go there? Muhammad's inside. It's occupied. And then I'm going to take you to the founder of Buddhism, Brahma. And somehow they're going to let you inside, and guess what? It's occupied with Brahma's skeletal bones. And then I'm going to take you probably out to Utah to Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism, and Joseph Smith is dead and in the grave. And I'm going to take you then to Mary Eddie Baker, who started Christian Science, and you're going to find Mary Eddie Baker's dead body in her tomb. And then we're going to get on a flight to Jerusalem, and we're going to go over there where they believe that he was laid in that man's tomb, and guess what? you will not find his body. He's the living Savior. He did not stay dead. Friends, when you witness, when you tell people about Jesus, you tell them of a Savior who died to pay for your sins and was risen so that you could have life and hope. That's what Romans says. I'm going to put it this way. When Jesus died, he installed, he made a deposit into the bank of God's righteousness through his blood, all of the atoning value that is needed for every person sin to be forgiven. And when he was risen from that grave, when he rose from that tomb, when he rose from the death, from his death, that check cleared the bank and he could begin writing out checks of forgiveness. You see how it works? It's the power of the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, your hope is in vain. We are still in our sins, but he died. And he rose again to give his life. Friends, we tell people of a living Savior. That is the hope of Jesus Christ. So I've told you four of them now. Here's the first. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the resurrected one. But let me tell you one more. Every single person will meet Jesus. And they're going to meet him, number five, as their judge. Everyone. He is the one appointed, verse 41, by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And friends, now is when your witnessing becomes heart-poundingly risky. Now is when your palms begin to sweat. Because now you're going to tell them that should they die bearing the guilt of their own sins, their outlook is more than bleak, it is fatal. For one whose sins were poured out on Christ, the judgment will not hold terror, but there is not a more frightening moment possible than standing before Jesus, the judge, with all of your guilt on your soul, all of your sins on your head, and wrath in his eyes. The Bible says that earth and sky will flee from his presence in that moment. In other words, there will be nothing for the sinner to hide behind to rescue him. 
And if that's going to be you one day, and I don't know where everybody is in this sanctuary or on the online audience, but if that's you one day, you were born in defiance and you died the same way. And the only one that you will ever be able to blame for your sentence in eternity in hell without pardon will be you. Why? Because you rejected the one who offered you forgiveness through his death, you would not believe. And believing, friends, is the invitation that Peter is about to give to this house packed full of Gentiles. Point number three. If you want a powerful witness, then you give a grace-filled invitation to believe. Look at verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, for Christ alone. That's all it ever is. It's always been like this. Because you might be asking me right now, if you're really thinking, which you should be, well, how did anybody in the Old Testament ever get saved? Well, Romans 4 answers it. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, in the Old Testament, the way you got saved worked like a credit card. You bought something today, and you paid for it later. Their faith was theirs that day. Christ would make the deposit later. Now it works like a debit card. You pull out that debit card. You've got your PIN number. It's Calvary. It's Jesus on the cross. And you can make immediate withdrawals of forgiveness. You can make immediate withdrawals of salvation, even though he died 2,000 years ago when he made the deposit into the bank. Do you see how it works? This is the invitation of grace. You've got to trust Jesus. You've got to abandon all other means and hopes. You've got to believe that he alone can and will save you. This is why John wrote, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You must believe. And if you will not, you stand condemned before Jesus the judge. But if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, you cannot go to heaven by works any more than you can climb to the moon on a rope of sand, but you can get there by believing the gospel. And lost people need to hear what the gospel is. Here's what the gospel is. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the resurrected one. And Jesus is the judge. And if you're going to have a powerful witness, then your life needs to be transformed. You need to give the gospel center message and you need to always give an invitation of grace and when you do that you're going to see the Lord work in such powerful ways do you not want that can you envision can you imagine cornerstone a church where we are doing this with our friends we are doing this with our family that doesn't believe we are doing this with our neighbors and our co-workers we're not just inviting them to church to hear the gospel bring them but we're telling them the gospel and we're sharing with them the gospel and i'm going to tell you what i've always learned there is no better person to share the gospel 
than someone whom they know loves them. That's always the best. And friends, that's you. That's you. And that's me. So let's pray for God to help us with that. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he has come. Lord, that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior, that he is the Redeemer. He is the resurrected one. He is and will be the judge. And Father, I pray that we, motivated by love, Lord, will speak the gospel to our friends, that we will speak to the, go- the gospel to our family that needs to hear about it. Father, that we will be bold and confident that you have anointed us, the Spirit of God dwells within us, and the Father has declared over us, we are his children, and with us he is well pleased. Why? Because of the work of his Son. Lord, we can have a powerful witness comes from a transformed heart, comes from a gospel-centered message, and Father, it comes from a grace-filled invitation to believe. May we be witnesses of Jesus to the very end of the earth. It's in that powerful, gracious, amazing name of Jesus himself that we pray. Amen.